Hi everybody, it's Matt Sedell and today I'm joined by Chris Hogwood. Um, he's a senior partner at Portland and Portland are strategic, they're a strategic communications company, a PR firm to me and you. Um, but they work with lots of firms like Uber, Facebook, Google, and Chris deals with a lot of property developers like the Crown Estates, you and I, and Granger, all the big boys. Uh, welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you very much for having me. What are we going to be talking about today? What are we going to tell everybody about? The thing I'm really interested in talking about is exactly how real estate is coping through the COVID-19 crisis. And I think the most important thing I want to get across is the part I think real estate can play in the recovery from COVID-19. So where the opportunities lie? Absolutely right. I think there is a real kind of opportunity. And I think for lots of the sectors we work with who have been sort of going through this process, I think when I look at all the sectors, real estate is the one where I see the quickest uh, and most exciting opportunity. Is that because the government always uses it to kickstart the economy again? Well, I think the point is they don't always. I think this time around, they are really, really starting to think through it. I think if you think back to the austerity regime, which was post-2008 banking crisis, you know, that really sort of skinned economic development, particularly around the role of the public sector and so on. I think they're thinking a little bit more holistically this time, and I think they are thinking a bit more about the role the public sector plays in driving strong investment. I think that's in infrastructure. I also really think it's in house building as well. Well, the difference with the GFC was there wasn't that lever for them to pull on where they could get the banks lending because the banks couldn't do that. But this time they can. Um, we're in a better yeah. position to recover, right? So construction, you think that's going to be the fastest route out of this mess? Uh, I think it's one that they're really, really keen on. I mean, you're absolutely right. They don't have the levers. Uh, they didn't have levers to pull last time round. This time round, it's going to be a blameless recession. Right? It's not like you can point a finger at a virus and say, well, we need to get them in front of a select committee and give it a telling off. Although there's probably MPs that would give that a go. Um, in terms of you know, the, the role of construction, I think if you look back to the start of this crisis, um, construction has been allowed to carry on throughout. I think that gives an indication of what the government thinks is a real sort of economic priority. They realised they had to shut down a big chunk of the economy. They were really, really keen to keep construction going. And you've seen they've been really, really keen to uh, encourage that and move it forward. That should give you an indication. The other thing that's worth sort of drawing attention to is HS2 getting the go-ahead to start construction about week three of lockdown. There was no reason to do that necessarily. There was no parliamentary need to do that, but they prioritised it. And I think that should be seen as a really good indication of what government wants to see happen. Okay, right. Hold on a minute. So like three weeks into the crisis, they rubber-stamped HS2 and said that's going ahead. Yeah, they effectively said that they were happy for construction to start. There are still loads of challenges to that project, don't get me wrong, but they turned around and said, yeah, we've got to go ahead and start construction. So I want to pay devil. need to do it in the midst of everything else going on. Is that because they could bury it? No, no, I think it's generally to sort of make sure that they're stimulating economic development and getting it moving along. I think if you think through the role of construction in the UK economy, it's about creating that pipeline of economic activity. So there's activity on site and all the kind of supply chain that that triggers, but it's also about bringing something to the market. So in terms of the development, it's going to be creating jobs. In terms of big infrastructure, it's about creating that sort of economic stimulus that really ties the country back together again. Okay, now I want to kind of put things into perspective here. Like, yeah. your firm's a pretty decent-sized firm, right? How many people in the business? Uh, about 250 worldwide. Okay, and what That's are those... Right. I think it's about 180 in London, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. What do they all do? <laughs> we work across lots of different sectors. So the broad thing is, as you said at the top, public relations. Um, the heritage of the business is public affairs. Uh, the bit I work in um, is our corporate unit that looks after UK-focused comms, public affairs, 
I specialize in real estate through a unit I look after called Portland Local. We also have a healthcare practice. Uh, we do we work with uh, global investors and philanthropists through our um, global impacts team. We do have a dispute practice, and then we have a number of overseas offices, uh, not least in Qatar and uh, Europe. So is it fair to say you guys are operating at quite a high level? Yeah, reasonably. I think um, we're, we're, we're involved in lots of different conversations at the moment uh, in some quite key sectors, um, some of which have been really disrupted by COVID-19, others who are actually doing very well in the context of COVID-19, I think are increasingly seen as part of the solution to it. I think you're definitely well positioned to give us some um, insights as to what's going on and what the government's view on things and how you think this is going to unfold and how things might um develop and, and where the opportunities are like, but also like one of your senior partners sent me this paper that you produced, which I thought was mm. fantastic. I'll happily share that with any candle members if they want to drop me a line. But the first question I want to ask you then, given how well positioned you are to comment on this is, um, mm. what do you think has been the public's perception of house building and property during the, the crisis? Because the construction sites uh, nearly had to shut down and they didn't yeah. and then they, talk us through that. Yeah, well, I think you, you'll see through that paper and, and obviously very happy for you to share it with your membership. We've been running a daily tracker poll uh, on the public perception of how different businesses, different sectors are operating in response to the lockdown, also tracking public sentiment towards the government, um, which I have to talk about a bit further down the line. Construction and real estate is consistently scored as the least responsible industry sector that we've been polling around. Um, I think just 25% of the public thought it acted responsibly through the crisis. Is that because of the estate agents? Uh, no, no, actually for a change, it is not estate agents. And all of a sudden, estate agents are now seen as part of the economic recovery, which I think we can all feel confident in. No offence to any estate agents. <laughs> Uh, I think the key thing at the moment, in, in terms of what drove that public sentiment, I think there was a couple of things. I think initially, when lockdown happened, you'll probably remember that there were a whole loads of construction workers going to work on crowded tube trains. They were being encouraged to go to work. That was in line with government advice. It was also at a time that TFL were reducing transport services to support social distancing. So all of a sudden, construction workers were very much in that sort of eye line. Um, and I think there is perhaps a sentiment that some of those construction businesses could have taken a stronger line earlier to protect their workers and, of course, the wider public from the spread of infection, like you saw from a lot of retail businesses starting to close their uh, businesses. For example, we worked for McDonald's, um, who shut down their construction sites. They also closed restaurants to protect their crew because they knew they couldn't manage social distancing. And part of their big reopening at the moment is because they've put in place really strong measures to protect their crew. I think the other driver to sort of public perception on real estate is almost the fact that real estate collects rents. Um, real estate is often the landlord. And if you think through um, quite quickly how the government started to talk about those issues in the first few days of lockdown, obviously they moved straight away to protect uh, those people with mortgages. Uh, and then um, uh, residential tenants who paid rent were sort of then saying, well, what about us, what about us? The government started to talk about rent deferrals, three-month uh, three holidays became a deferral. Similar thing happened with um, commercial rents. And I think it pushes real estate into that role of landlord. Um, and the word landlord is, is rarely positive. And I think government took a very calculated decision that landlords bad, tenants good is a good way of us sort of constructing policy and support. Yeah. I think you know, there's been discussions after that, um, which I know sort of the British Property Federation have been really, really keen to lean into. But I think that sort of set the baseline of how the sector is perceived. 
So then if you've got these big clients like Crown Estate and Granger and the government's not really doing many favours because everyone's thinking just because there's a builder or a tradesman on a tube, but he's got to go to work because he can't get furloughed because he's self-employed and he's got to put food on the table. It's a messy situation, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the challenges that government has been dealing with, and this is not unique to the real estate sector, is really getting to grips with how complex the modern economy actually is. Um, so, I mean, take the rental issue, for example. I know they've been trying to get a really good sense from the big, the really big players in the market, particularly on the commercial rent side. How long, how long can you cope with, without securing commercial rents and so on? And obviously, those guys don't really want to open up their books transparently. Well, we've got, to, we've got to wait until June's rent comes in, because that's quarterly rent. Yeah. March, March yeah. was probably fine. I think some retail shopping centres still collected 40% of their rent. But wait yeah. until June's rent's due. That's going to be a real... Yeah, and I think a whole load of those businesses are sort of assuming they're not going to see much in the way of rent much later on in the year. Um, but government didn't really, hadn't really had a chance to sort of think through the sort of long-term implications of all that and how many different um, sectors were actually impacted when those sort of large real estate companies to reach sort of larger landlords and so on. If they aren't collecting rent, what that means for wider investments, you know, in terms of their own pipeline, in terms of how they're paying staff, but also, you know, all the different funds they invest in them as well and what that means sort of longer term for a much broader section of the economy. Very complex. I'll give you an example. We've got one guy in the club who sits on the board of a large construction business. They normally got five or 6,000 people on site. And right. during the crisis, they had to push that all the way down to 800. I mean, that's, yeah. that's no easy task, is it? But all right, so what do you, what's your verdict then? Reputationally, how do you think property sectors um, cope during the crisis? So I think it's not been amazing. I think it sort of got off to a shaky start, not necessarily through reasons of its own making. Um, the construction thing, they were actually obeying government rules. And then I think there was that sort of perpetual issue around being a landlord and so on. I think the difficulty is, is in any of these kind of crises, how quickly you can move from sort of pleading special circumstances, give me a bailout, help me out. What are you going to do? Um, how do I protect my income? Where's my rent going to come from and so on? And then how quickly can you start thinking slightly more constructively around how you feed into making things better? Yeah. So I think, you know, the British Property Federation did a really interesting thing, I think, which was around creating a sort of concept of furloughed space. So there's a whole load of different areas at the moment that just aren't active because of social distancing and so on. So big retail centres and so on. So is there a way of sort of government supporting that? I think... Government didn't really have the sort of time and bandwidth to sort of get into that kind of issue. Um, and instead, I think where we're seeing the sort of most successful conversations with government at the moment is how sectors have either been contributing to immediately supporting the crisis, but then also starting to talk through how you recover from it. Okay. Um, it's interesting hearing you speak because it, just amongst Candle's own membership, it really has been about communication, especially with the landlords who've got tenants and they need to communicate like, are yeah. you struggling to pay your rent? Can you prove that you can't pay your rent? Have you been furloughed? Have you not been furloughed? Yeah. And just maintaining good relationships. But <clears throat> um, switching back to the government funding, the um, business interruption loans didn't really seem to work very well. The grants worked great. Um, yeah. You know, like chucking money out of a helicopter generally does go down quite well. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, everyone loves Rishi right now, right? Good-looking good man chucking out money. It's good times. Bounce-back loans has definitely been better. Um, yeah. and, and quite effective and that seems to have taken care of a lot of people but the furloughing is going on to October now that just sounds like a long way away right now in the middle of May yeah, it really is and I think uh, I, I thought it was interesting how Treasury played it 
sort of in effect sort of said, well, obviously there was this sense coming out that perhaps it would end in July and so on, then further kind of brand Rishi opportunity to turn around and go, oh, no, 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 it's extending till October. Or, or, oh, no, no, July 2021. <laughs> yeah, well, I think the interesting thing will be whether or not they want to flex a bit of that at the moment. So there's obviously this uh, sense that people can have, come back potentially part-time with businesses topping up and so on. But realistically, I think all of us sort of sit there thinking this is not an ideal situation to be in. And what we want in as safe a way as possible is to get the economy up and running again um, as effectively as we can do. I mean, lots of businesses, my own, my own included, works quite well in this format. You know, the things I most miss out on are probably the things I expect lots of your members miss out on, which is the occasional nice dinner and ability to sort of have a face-to-face uh, discussion as opposed to things like this, where you know, we can build rapport, we can have a good conversation. I think it's it's hard to forge really new relationships like this, but lo- lots of parts of our business can operate like this. Lots can't, you know? Lots, lots of other industries can't. So, you know, incrementally, we need to find ways to bring them back online. Um, obviously, there is the role of testing and vaccines, which is well out of my sort of comfort zone to comment on and so on. But bit by bit, we'll hopefully be able to sort of bring bits of the economy back and reduce the exposure to furlough because as amazing as actually I think that scheme is, it can't be sustained. Okay, so my next question for you is, yeah. uh, in your opinion, has the government done enough to support the sector? Um, broadly, no. Um, I think in part because of that sort of initial play, that or initial sort of context I spoke about before, which is the kind of uh, difference between landlord and tenants. I think landlords are often quite faceless businesses, whereas tenants are either real people or actually they're the kind of consumer brands or local neighbourhood stores that you know and love. So I think they've been quite, not entirely cynical, but I think they've realised where they're going to get the kind of most grief from. I think after week one, they've been a little bit more open to having conversations and I think the sector sort of came together a bit more sharply after that to really think through how it could play into it. I think it's interesting looking at house building at the moment, you know, there's been real pressure to sort of get them up on site. And I think there's a bit of disparity between the different house builders thinking through how they can do that, get their pipeline going again, you know, whether it's proceeding cautiously or in a slightly more gung-ho manner and so on. Um, I think what government's looking for the sector to do now is really sort of create some space to think about how it's going to contribute to the recovery. And I actually think that that conversation needs to happen at a local government level as much as it is at a national government level as well. Okay. I don't want to put in any awkward positions in case they're clients, but are there any lessons that we can draw upon from um, the airline industry, maybe Richard Branson, from the retail sector, perhaps Mike Ashley? I mean, they seem to have really ended up on the wrong side of the media and the public opinion, haven't they? Yeah, I think there's a relatively good PR role is to not be Mike Ashley um, as a kind of baseline point. I take it he's not a client then. Uh, not a client. I'm hoping he's not a member. Uh, I think the uh, I think the key thing to focus on is that point I made earlier about special pleading and also just like read the room a little bit. So Richard Branson, massively wealthy man, um, owns an island, sort of feel that he could probably do something to support his teams if he really needed to do. Mike Ashley, I won't sort of comment on any further, but I think I've probably given a sort of broad sense of my overview on him. So it goes to that sort of special pleading thing, like where do you think the sympathy is really going to exist for you? Um, and then what value are you playing in the broader economy? So um, it's great to kind of go along to a to government and say, I need money for X. Fantastic. There's no shortage of businesses, individuals, 
um, charities who are sort of having a probably harder time of it than ever before coming to the government and saying, we need your support. The question is, what's the quid pro quo? Yes. You know, uh, like, right. so, yeah. They've broken rule number one, right? Rule number yeah. one is think about helping your clients first because then people will um, warm to you and be drawn to helping yeah. you more. Like if you give more, you get more. And they've gone yeah. straight out and held out their cap and quite rightly yeah. been slapped down. Absolutely. I think the, the savvier businesses we work with got that from day one. I yeah. think a few more have kind of like really sort of embraced it in recent weeks and so on. But, you know, the conversation is much easier if you're turning around saying, like, we actually want to contribute, we really want to help. That gives you the, the license to then say, to enable us to do this, it would be really helpful if you could support us in this. And, you know, the context of this is you're not going to get everything you're going to, you want to ask for, but you might get something and that will give you something to work with. All right, but presumably also if you do it the right way, like Leon turn itself into a convenience store and yes. Burberry doing their masks, then not only um, do people support what you're doing, they'll allow you to make money by doing that. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's I'm okay. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think like agility is really, really important, right? So if you've just basically got one business model and you don't have people thinking at the top about how you can adapt, then you're going to you're going to struggle. Yeah, I think all of those businesses that talk about how they could repurpose themselves, I can't remember off the top of my head now which um, uh, sort of cosmetics company started making hand sanitizer. No, it was the beer yeah. company. It was um, yeah, uh, Brewdog, whatever they're called. Uh, yeah, to just sort of well, I think the Brewdog did it, and then there was a sort of like there was a cosmetics one. Anyway, the point being, how how smart was that? Right at that moment in time, when everyone was looking for hand sanitizer, and the shops will run out, and we were going through that slightly weird moment where everyone was buying up toilet paper for some slightly inexplicable reason. There was a business going, well, okay, like we we need to switch over and, and do something, but actually it just creates that really strong brand halo, I guess that then means that the next time you go to someone and you need something, they'll go, oh, you're the guys that did that. Good you're thing. right. I trust you. Yeah, um, absolutely right. Absolutely right. I think, you know, I think lots of, one of the things we have seen through our tracker polling is actually how businesses with those kind of strong sense of purpose, people are sort of flocking to a little bit more because they're just identifying a little bit more with them and saying, well, actually, these people feel like good guys. Obviously, the stakes become higher in that context as well, which is, you know, like, if you make a wrong step, you will look very, very bad very, very quickly. You might remember right at the start of the crisis, uh, various newspapers and in some, some trade unions were effectively running a sort of good business, bad business list. You know, who's said silly things in the context of COVID-19 yeah. on a bit of news coverage? And whatever they've done to pull back from that further down the line... The point there is they made it onto those lists because they made a bad decision in a pressure moment. Yeah. And I think that's one of the key things for all businesses to think through is about making the right decision for the business, not necessarily for today, but for the business long term. Yeah. Okay, so this all leads me perfectly to my next question for you, which is how should the real estate sector be thinking about its role in the recovery from the coronavirus crisis? Yep. Uh, I think, obviously, the, the real estate sector is pretty complex and so on, but I think a kind of broad rule of thumb is how you contribute into the recovery. So I think we talked a little bit earlier about the role of construction in that. I think construction is going to be really, really important because of the, the sort of baseline of economic activity it represents. I also think property developers in particular should be thinking very, very carefully about the local area that they're working in and the contribution they're going to be making there. Local governments are not going to come out of this crisis particularly, uh, particularly flush with cash. 
Um, they're spending a lot of money to do sort of COVID-19 support work. The government has indicated it's not going to pay them back for everything they're doing. So they're going to be really, really interested in what uh, economic uh, contributions they can uh, they can get from businesses that want to work with them. Now, I think sometimes it can get quite adversarial between real estate sector and local government. I think now is a really, really critical time for the two of them to come together. Yeah. Local government needs investment, but they also have high priorities and high standards that they want businesses to live up to. So all the talk about sort of environmental improvements, the sort of net zero agenda, that is still there and we shouldn't compromise it. Local government's view is they want to see businesses coming forward that are prepared to invest in the community and prepared to deliver good outcomes for the sort of broader environmental context. But I think that's quite an important thing for them to think about. I think the second thing that real estate more broadly should think about, and this is a sweeping generalisation, but I think too often real estate can sort of default to scale, like the, the sort of the ideas it wants to talk about tall buildings or landmark buildings. The number of landmark buildings I've worked in in my lifetime, um, they don't seem to be recognising landmark as landmarks very often afterwards and so on. But actually, I think real estate should think a little bit more about what it is that those buildings deliver. Um, so it's not about the square footage or the height or even the GBA. It's about the jobs, it's about the homes. I think it's also about the social fabric. You know, sometimes it's the buildings themselves, but actually more often than not, it's, it's the kind of places in between. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing that like, people really come to value. I think when you, when you interact with a good development, it's very rare that you think, oh, it's really, really high. You think, oh, that worked. King, King's Cross has got to be a great example. It went from the knocking corner of, of uh, like, it went from where all the hookers are hanging out to one of the most vibrant parts of the city with the restaurants and the cafes and great yeah. example. Absolutely right. And I think, you know, it's just, it's a pleasant place to walk through and it's a pleasant place to just sort of spend half an hour if you suddenly find yourself needing to. I think the other thing which, you know, I think it's far too early in this in this sort of period to really work this out, is just to rethink or just consider and reappraise where it is that we feel people want to live and where they want to work. So as I said earlier, you know, we're working like this. Great. There's a reason lots of people live uh, in the greater London area, it's because there's lots of jobs in central London. Do we necessarily need to have all those sort of jobs in those places? So there is a question about the role of offices in central London. I think there's also a question of where the housing market should be thinking about targeting next and so on, and whether the sort of London and South East thing is going to be challenged slightly. I mean, part of the polling we've been doing, we asked the question um, about a week and a half ago, just to say, you know, through COVID-19, has it made you rethink where you live or how you interact with your kind of residential area and so on? And a few interesting things came back. I think the, the, the most interesting thing was actually people thinking they wish they lived closer to their family and friends. So I think you often have lots of people feeling quite isolated in, you know, the places where they've been there and thinking actually like human interaction is really important to me and just the sense that I could be within striking distance from them. Obviously, you know, whole number of us move as far away from our families as we possibly can. Uh, but actually, you know, things like this make you reappraise different things. And obviously, the sort of, the big thing, which we all worked on the basis of, is I need to be in London to both live and work, is being questioned at the moment. I'm not saying it's, it's, it's no longer valid. I just mean that people are going to be thinking about that a little bit more. And we've proved that we can do a large number of our jobs remotely. So whether it'll be interesting to see how that holds through the rest of this year and into next year. 
I think it makes some very, very good points there. <clears throat> and I think the businesses that will really take advantage of this opportunity are the ones that um, know how to challenge and motivate the people that work within the businesses without having to police them all the time <clears throat> and knowing that they're engaged and they're happy. And if they want to take an hour off to go for a walk in a park because they live somewhere where there is a nice park and they want to take advantage of it or have a coffee in the sun um, yeah. or just take a proper hour off at lunchtime to, to do something else, you, their productivity should go up if they're doing what's yeah. right for them and, and, and what they're naturally suited to doing. I, I know for me, I, I know I run my own business, I've never worked so hard, but I also know my team's working incredibly hard and they're performing yeah. brilliantly. Yeah. I was, it was a thing for us as well. I was so impressed with how we adapted to remote working so quickly. You know, it was very much a kind of, so we went a week before the lockdown started, I think. Uh, and we just sort of said, right, we're going to work from home remotely. We're mainly on Microsoft Teams. Um, and, let, you know, let's adapt. And I think we put a lot of time in in the first few weeks just to make sure people were fine. Lots of kind of group, like, chats and so on. We sort of turned that off a little bit just basically to give people more time, like you sort of say, because, you know, if people want to start at 7.30, get a few hours done, and then just go for a run or something, yeah. fine. If they want to take two hours out in the middle of the day just because it's going to help them do some shopping or, you know, do some exercise or, you know, help the kids with primary school maths, absolutely fine. That's basically what I'm doing. I'm failing at primary school maths. There's lots of different people. Everyone's quite unique or whatever. But I know for me personally, I'm working with four people every day. I've never met them physically. Uh, I've got new clients that I've never met and they're great. And I'm working with yeah. them. I've got great relationships with some of them on the phone on Saturdays and Sundays and late in the evening. Um, but then you've got other people who are thinking this thing's going to go away in a month or two and hoping that then yeah. everything's going to go back to normal. Like it is never going to be the same. And it's yeah. kind of a good thing. All the progress has been massively accelerated. So... Get with the yeah, agenda. I think the interesting thing, particularly for, for you guys to think through further down the line, is going to be the bit where some people are comfortable coming together and others would rather stay remote. So stay, say in six months' time, the broadest part of the economy is open, but we still haven't sort of sorted out a vaccine or anything for the virus. You know, there's going to be people who are on that vulnerable shielding list who don't really want or have family members to do, who therefore don't want to interact and so on. But how do you yeah, how, how do you do events in that context? So where you've got some people in the room and some people remotely, or do you need to completely disaggregate them? I, I'm, we're really thinking about it in terms of meetings in the business. So, you know, if some of us start going back to the office, how are we going to kind of make sure it still interacts properly and it's not a sort of second class experience being online, or do you just need to do the two things completely separate? I think we'll we'll all work through it, but it's there to be worked through. That's another topic for probably for another day because it's a huge yeah. challenge. Like people who are living with um, vulnerable people or, or or whatever. That's 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 just gonna have to be for another day. I think. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything you want to leave um, the listeners with before we say goodbye? Uh, I think the main thing for me is that the real estate uh, I know has a real opportunity to do something quite special in the sort of next six months to a year, and I really hope it embraces that opportunity. I think that's what's going to define the winners and the losers from this. Uh, the ones that seize the chance and, and, and create something new um, and the ones that don't move fast enough. Um, Chris, I think that's all we've got time for today. I just want to say thanks so much for joining us. It's been very insightful. Actually, I do have one more question. I don't know if you're the right okay. guy to answer this. Tax. Oh, God. What? You're Is it all going to go up or what? Uh, I think the easiest thing to do would be some form of business-driven taxes rather than personal taxes. Because it's a vote winner or vote retainer. Well, 
it's easier to tax business than it is to tax people. Twenty five percent corporation tax. Oh, I'm not gonna. I'm not. I'm not gonna. <laughs> I mean, the big thing is there's going to be a huge amount of money missing, and we everything should be on the table. You've probably seen a few things floated in the press. No, I haven't. Are they talking uh, about twenty five percent? Basically, there's been a few sort of leaked papers looking at what might need to happen in terms of business taxes, personal taxes, um, to sort of uh, help claw back some of the money that's gone out the door. Um, I think. Some of that is just the Treasury sort of saying everything's on the table. I think the, the real thing for the government to work through is actually the timeline that it needs to get the money back. So you often assume you've, got, you've given up so much money out of the door, the, the debt has sort of driven and the deficit is therefore being driven as well. But what's the time scale we really need to pay this back over? And just, you know, the point I made earlier on, this is effectively a blameless recession. So let's sort of not make it harder for ourselves, I think is the key point. I don't think VAT's ever been more than 20%, has it? Not to my knowledge. Well, I don't want to jinx um, it, so touch with the, that's... Yeah. Don't give them ideas, though. Come on, they might watch this. But 20, I think VAT is 25% of the tax revenues and income tax is half and national insurance, to maybe yeah. together they're half. Yeah, broadly that. And obviously, that involves people spending money. So there is that really delicate balancing act between, you know, getting the money back and actually sort of not doing anything so punitive it stops people spending money again. I mean, the housing market's one at the moment. They're obviously trying to get going again with estate agents, as you mentioned, but also surveyors, you know, allowing them to go into homes and so on. A stamp duty holiday would be a nice thing, but I suspect they won't be doing that. No, I don't think so. And you keep saying it's going to be a blameless uh, crisis, but... Well, so I think in terms of the, the causes of the recession are blameless. Um, how businesses and government have responded is where the blame will potentially lie. Um, and obviously, I, I mean, through our tracker poll, public support for government action is actually incredibly high throughout. The lockdown is one of the most popular public policies ever tested, and we're not the only people who have concluded that. I think all the other major policies have as well. There's The government's reputation has fallen slightly in terms of public perception since last week, when this sort of slightly fudged unravelling has sort of started to come through. You know, Are you talking about Boris's speech where he's like, go out, stay in, stay in, go out, work, don't, don't work. work. Don't take public transport, drive, can't drive, cycle. If you can't cycle, hop, do one of those things. Mm. Um, yeah, and I think that, you know, that kind of mixed message sort of creates doubts and so on. But there will be there will be a sort of, you know, there will be a review into all this kind of stuff. You know, did the government make the right decisions when? But I think we're at least a year out from having any sense of whether we've made the right decisions or the wrong decisions. I think whether you love him or loathe him, Boris Johnson's just come out of intensive care unit, just had another baby, might not even know how many children he's got. He's trying to deal with a major national crisis. It's not an easy job, is it? <laughs> uh, no, no. I mean, I don't really fancy it myself. So, you know, good luck to him. Yeah, pass. Um, Chris, I think on that bombshell, um, I'm going to bid you farewell. Thanks for joining us. It's been really great. Lovely to see you. Look forward to seeing you soon. Cheers, buddy. Take it easy. Take care.